That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, uh, coming from different life situations. We've, we've come in this morning after a different week. You alone know the secrets of all hearts. And you know us. And we thank you that you've spoken to us in the pages of your word and supremely in the living word, Jesus Christ. So now we ask that you would speak to us as we spend time in this text. Amen. A certain tightrope walker publicized that he was going to walk across the Niagara Falls. He stretched a rope across it. A large crowd gathered and he dusted his hands and feet with some powdered chalk grasped a balancing pole and strolled across the rope. And he not only went across, he made the return trip. And the crowd stood amazed and cheered. Then the man announced he would do it again. This time, no pole. And again, he went over and back successfully. Stepping off the rope, he turned to the crowd and asked who thought he could make a third trip, this time with a wheelbarrow. Some of them cried out, yes, but others were skeptical. So he set off on his task and completed it with the greatest of ease. So then he asked the crowd whether or not they now believed that he could do the same thing with the wheelbarrow full of cement. And this time, the entire crowd responded with great enthusiasm and confidence. They knew he could do it, and he did. Again, he performed the feat with the greatest of ease, and having completed these four trips successfully, he asked the spectators if they believed he could wheel a human being across the dangerous expanse. And the response was unanimous. Yes, yes, of course you can do it. You can do it. They knew he could. And upon their reply, he turned to a gentleman in the crowd and said, all right, my friend, let's go. Now that story captures the main point of our passage today, which is, it is time to trust Jesus. It is time to trust Jesus. That's a message for all of us. They say that football is a game of two halves. The Gospel of Mark can be read as a tale of two halves. In the first half, the author is prompting us to ask Who is this? And nearly everyone in the first half of Mark is asking that question. And in the second half, the author is making us ask, what did Jesus come to do? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? So the story of Mark can be divided into two great confessions, two breakthrough statements. Uh, The first one is coming soon in chapter 8. It was coming next week. And the disciple Peter gets it. You are the Messiah, He says, you're the Messiah. And Peter was right. The promised king, God's promised king, who would sort out the evils of the world and bring in God's kingdom. Peter was right. And yet, and yet, you can truly see who Jesus is, but fail terribly to grasp what he really came to do. And Peter immediately does that. And we're going to think more next week. Peter makes the great breakthrough statement. And Jesus replies quickly, that Jesus is going to suffer many things, be killed, and rise from the dead after three days. And then Peter goes from hero to zero. He actually takes Jesus aside and begins to tell him off. He says, you, 
you can't say things like that. Stop that. You see, Peter has seen, but he's failed to understand. And so we can see that it is possible to understand a lot about Jesus and not really see him at all. Now, like the people watching that tightrope walker, you can discover how amazing Jesus Christ is and then be too scared to get in the wheelbarrow. You are afraid to take a risk. You know in your head that he's quite capable of, of taking your life safely through danger, and yet you are too afraid to act on it. Non-believing people do this when they are exploring the Christian faith and they reach a point where it gets personal. They reach a point where they realize there is a living God and Jesus Christ is God and the Holy Spirit is coming to them and challenging them to get in the wheelbarrow and they actually, for, for a variety of reasons, pull back and make lots of different excuses and walk away. Christians do this too when life goes wrong. We're all great and full of faith as long as life is going along the track that we have in mind. But when really bad times come in, when the storm hits, when you're deeply disappointed, when you can't make sense of what's happening in your life, when you're very hurt, we tend to stop trusting. But it is time to trust Jesus, friends. It's time. And it's not simply fear, actually, that keeps us from trusting Jesus Christ, it is sin as well. The Bible shows us that faith and believing are ultimately a moral choice because believing in Jesus Christ means not just accepting data about him from the past, but letting him be Lord of your life. Lord of all, or not at all. If you follow Jesus, all of you goes in. There is nothing he could ask of you that you would say is too much. And so you hold back. Often when people say they can't follow Jesus because of intellectual doubts, which are genuine, underneath is a moral reason. They don't want to obey him. And I want to show you today how ridiculous it is to live life trusting in anything except Jesus Christ. But we are constantly tempted to do so. And so it's ridiculous to trust anyone more than Jesus. We're constantly tempted to do so, so it's time to trust him. Three brief points from this passage. Healings, feedings, questions. Healings, feedings, questions. Healings, you notice in this passage, there were two healings. Uh, the first one uh, took place in verse 31 and onwards. That's a deaf and mute man. And then... In chapter 8, verse 22 and onwards, there is the healing of a blind man. So we've, we've got uh, two, two bookends here of healings. Now, in an ancient churches and ancient cathedrals, if you've ever been into a very old, beautiful, medieval cathedral, they often have um, an artwork called a triptych. And a triptych is made up of uh, three panels, and it's a picture or a carving. And there are three panels, and often they were hinged together, so you'd have a centerpiece and two, two pieces on the side. And they were often used as an altarpiece in the old Roman Catholic churches. And our text today is a beautiful triptych. It has three panels. The center panel shows Jesus feeding the 4,000. And the two panels on either side are the two healings. Okay, you got the image? And Jesus also has a discussion with the Pharisees and the disciples in the center. So that's very important too. Now the two flanking patterns panels that show the two healings. Remember, Mark is not making stuff up 
or creative writer. Mark is an editor. He's a theological editor. And what he's doing in his book is putting together material that's been entrusted to him. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's shaping it into a powerful narrative. So this isn't chronological. You know, this isn't following on like this happened in May and then the next chapter was in June and the next was in July. It's not like that. It's put together to tell us a theological story. The ordering of the pieces is significant. Two healing miracles. And both times, people bring a man and they want Jesus to touch him. Both times, Jesus takes the man away from the crowd. Both times, Jesus does some strange actions, including spit. Notice that? What's the spit about? Jesus does some strange actions, and the healing in both cases has two stages. Very unusual. We know that Jesus can heal with a word instantaneously, even from a distance. Why now do we have these two-stage healings? And in both cases, Jesus warns them not to speak to anyone about it and to go home. So there's loads of parallels. You get the parallels. Now, what is going on here? Early readers of Mark might have picked up on a really rare word in chapter 7, verse 32. If you want to look back at your Bible, chapter 7, verse 32, that's page 1011. It says here, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Could hardly talk. It means he had a severe speech impediment. Almost like an image of his tongue being tied up in knots. He just can't speak. Uh, Terrible affliction, that. Severe speech impediment. And this word that is in the original language is only used one other time in the entire biblical literature. So that makes it quite interesting, and not just for nerds. It's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's in the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah is in the background of Mark all the way through. And Mark is using this word as a subtle clue to us, a signal, if you know, to look up Isaiah 35 and see what's really, really, bless you, what's really going on. And when you see that, it is breathtaking. I'm just going to read a bit of it out. You don't have to turn to it. This is what Isaiah says. Some of the most beautiful writing, I think, in in the history of literature. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay grass and reeds and papyrus will grow Isaiah is painting a picture and the chapter concludes only the redeemed will walk there And those the Lord has rescued 
will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. We used to sing a song in this church many years ago. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Do you remember it? And come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. <laughs> it was a great song. I don't, know, I don't know why we don't sing it anymore. Now you know where it came from, Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the mute tongue shouting for joy. The vision in Isaiah is what will happen when the creator God comes with power to renew his whole creation. He won't leave it as it is now, in the age of the Messiah. And Mark is showing us by this little sign that in Jesus Christ, that age has now begun. The kingdom is inaugurated, not here fully, it has begun. The mute tongue, Charles Wesley put it into a hymn. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongue employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. So this is far, far more than a couple of miracle stories, which we may have thought when we just saw it. Mark is waking us up to the fact that in Jesus, a whole new world is beginning. This, uh, excuse me, talk about stammering. This series is called The World Turned Upside Down. We could also call it A Whole New World. A whole new world. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. The kingdom of God is coming to renew the whole world. A whole new order of reality. Jesus is that powerful. He's doing what only God can do. He's doing what God has promised to do. Make everything new. Professor Tom Wright, one of the greatest uh, Bible scholars of our generation and formerly Bishop of Durham, says about Isaiah that this was a prophecy of the renewal of Israel after the long sad years of exile. God's people would be rescued from pagan oppression and creation itself would celebrate. Healing then and perhaps healing now can never simply be a matter of correcting a few faults in the human body. It was always was and always will be and supremely is in Jesus' actions a sign of God's love breaking in to the painful and death-laden present world. Healing is appointed to the great healing that will occur when the secret is out, when Jesus is finally revealed to the whole world and our present stammering praise is turned into full-throated song. When Mark urges his readers to follow Jesus, he envisages not a boring life of conventional religion, but things happening. Things that would make people astonished. And if we're too deaf to hear what he's saying, the problem is with us rather than with the message. Amen? Now, not only is Jesus powerful, he's also very compassionate. I want you to notice um, the way that he deals with these two disabled men. Notice for chapter 7, verse 33, if you've got your Bible there. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spat and touched his tongue. And then he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he says, be opened. What's going on here? 
This is accessibility ministry. This is ministry to the disabled that's very compassionate because Jesus is adapting his communication to the needs of a deaf-mute man. This man's been brought. Bear in mind, he's deaf and mute. He he doesn't know what's going on. Jesus takes him to one side, away from all the bustle and all the people, and he's he's showing him something. And and you see what he's doing? Very compassionate, very personal. Touch. It's very tender. This man needed sign language. So Jesus adapts to his needs. And that's what we try and do at the King's Church in accessibility ministry. Great ministries go on here. We want to build and grow that across the whole congregation. But this is an example of ministry to the disabled. Jesus shows deep sympathy, adapting to their needs and personal engagement with the man. So Jesus is both incredibly powerful and incredibly tender. But if he's so powerful, why does the healing of the blind man seem to take two goes? Notice, if you turn over to uh, chapter 8, again, he takes the man by the hand, leads him outside, he spits on the eyes, put his hands on him, and he says, do you see anything? And man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So he's got, it seems like he's got sight back, but bear in mind if he's been blind from birth or from early childhood, the cognition... The mental capacities to to tie up what's coming in here with the brain are not developed. He can see, but it's just like, well, I think, what is that? It can't make sense of the data. That's the first stage of the healing. And then the second stage is Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes a second time, and then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Okay, there's a two-stage healing, but what's the point of that? It's to teach us a lesson. A very vital lesson, and it's this. You you still with me? You can see a lot of things about Jesus Christ and yet fail to understand him. And that will be some of us here. And we're praying that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes now. Now, all of this comes into focus in the middle of the second panel, the middle panel. Remember, we've done healings, now we're doing feedings. Verses 8, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. Another large crowd gathered, they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples. I've got compassion on them. They've been with me three days and nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they're going to collapse because some of them have come a long distance. Does any of this give anyone here a feeling of deja vu? Yeah? Uh... (laughs) <laughs> a large crowd, a remote place, nothing to eat, hungry. Jesus has compassion, wants to feed them. Disciples are negative, thinks it can't be done. Jesus patiently gets them to do an inventory of their scarce resources. They have some loaves and a few small fish. Any of this sounding familiar? If you've been at the church, I really hope it has. There is one member of our church who falls asleep 30 seconds into every one of my sermons, but not all of you. Yet you remember this. We've had a feeding like this before. Of course we have. People ate, were satisfied. Just a couple of pages back, chapter 6, we read the feeding of the 5,000. So what's going on here? Now we've got 4,000. And some um, skeptics have sort of thought, well, you know, Mark, he's just putting together stories. He didn't really remember that he'd already told this one. And, you know, it's a bit embarrassing. I, I can't believe how how anyone would think that. Mark is so, is so careful. What's going on here? 
This time it's in non-Jewish country. Look at chapter 7, verse 31. He left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis, an area of 10 cities, non-Jewish cities. So the crowd here are mostly Gentiles, non-Jews. And remember, the Jews regarded them as unclean people. They even called them dogs. And to be called a dog in that culture was not a compliment. And I got in a lot of trouble for talking about dogs in this church as the unclean beasts that they really are. (laughs) And they would no way sit down and eat with them. And even you, dog lovers, would not have your dog sit at your table and eat off your plate. Maybe you do. But Jesus invites these dogs to dinner and provides a banquet. And what is this showing? Jesus will receive anyone. Cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, class barriers do not matter to him. And there's an interesting note that at the end they picked up seven baskets of uh, broken pieces. Um, And Jesus even underlines this when he says to his disciples, look, guys, do you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls to pick up? Twelve. Twelve is the number of God's people. That was the new Israel being uh, instated. Okay, he says, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces to pick up? Seven. What's seven? Lots of people have speculated about this. I think the simplest answer is seven is the number of fullness. This is the fullness of who God is bringing in. So God is creating a new Israel, but he's bringing in all the nations. That's why it's so great that so many nations are represented in our church. There's nowhere in the world that you get a community so diverse as the Christian church. What a great gift. So we're seeing all this. Now, these disciples show us something very important and very troubling about ourselves. It's this. We are very, very prone to forget. Very prone. How could they not believe that this time Jesus would be able to feed the crowd? Really? They were there. They'd been there. They'd handed out the food to the 5,000. Why did the disciples revert back to their typical posture of unbelief? Wouldn't you expect that based on previous experience, they would now trust Jesus? Wouldn't you? You would. Do you think these disciples are stupid? Short-sighted, forgetful, amnesia? Because, of course, you would never do anything like that, would you? I mean, you would never experience the power of God in your life and then doubt that he would do it again, would you? You would never see God answer a prayer and then in future wonder if God would answer a prayer. You would never see God provide for you when all the chips were down and then doubt him the next time, would you? Oh, you've all gone quiet over there. (laughs) Great morning for singing today. You know you do. We all do this. We have a typical posture And we revert to it. These things were written down for us to teach us about ourselves. We should see ourselves in the disciples, mixed ability group that they are. And so the final point 
remember it's healings, feedings, questions. The final point, questions, is critical for our spiritual health, and we've got to notice the questions Jesus asks. Questions are very, very important in the Bible, especially in the Gospels. A wonderful man and writer, Dick Kyes, of the Labrie in Massachusetts, studied every single question in the Gospels. And he realized that Jesus often teaches people through questioning them. He gives a question. That's a teaching method. Jesus often made people think through questions. Surprisingly, Jesus sometimes asks a person a question and then walks away. He doesn't feel the need to give a full explanation every time like we do. He asks a penetrating question and then leaves the person, gives them space to work it out. Jesus loves questions. But there is no other place where he fires off such a blast of questions as in this passage. Look with me at verse, chapter 8, verse 17. I would love to know the tone of voice here. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have ears but fail to see and eyes, sorry, eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? You see what he said? Question after question after question. I think there's a sense of frustration. You see the irony of verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? The blind receive their sight. The deaf receive their hearing. The disciples fail to see and hear. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. Now what this means is that you and I can be ever so close to Jesus and fail to see him. Fail to hear him. Fail to believe in him, which is shown by a life of trust. That's why he gives a warning in our text, verse 15. Watch out. Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Why are we talking about Bake Off? Watch out for the yeast. Now, who are these people? The Pharisees were a moralistic protest group. They want to establish a program of national morality to bring in the kingdom of God by human efforts to be pure. They're often clashing with Jesus, as we've seen before. And in verses 11 and 12, they, they test Jesus, asking for a sign from heaven. Give us a sign. Give us a sign from heaven. What have you just seen? Haven't you had enough signs? The answer is some people will never have enough evidence. You've probably seen that, haven't you? Some people just never have enough evidence. No matter what Jesus does, they will not believe. They will not accept his claims because they are predisposed to reject him. They have an a priori don't even know how to pronounce that, commitment not to believe. Jesus doesn't fit their categories. He challenges their ideas. He challenges their cherished beliefs. So they must find a reason to reject him. And to such people, Jesus actually eventually says, enough. You've had enough evidence now. And your decision to continue doubting is actually a moral choice. It's no longer based on a lack of evidence. It's based on a lack of trust. Is that you? Is that you? You could be in grave danger, friend. Reconsider. It's time to trust Jesus. So he refuses to give him another sign. That's the Pharisees. What about Herod, this king? 
We're talking about chalk and cheese here. Strange bedfellows. Herod was about as worldly, corrupt, and cynical as you could get. Remember, he had John the Baptist's head cut off in a drunken orgy. The Pharisees were deeply committed to religion. Herod was not. What on earth do Herod and the Pharisees have in common? One thing, which is a stubborn refusal to believe in spite of the evidence. They will not admit the truth, let alone embrace it. Even when it stares them in the face, they, when they're right up against it, they will not accept it. And so Jesus warns, beware of this yeast, verse 15. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, this word is probably better translated leaven. And some of you have got older uh, translations. If you've got the King James Version, I think it would say leaven. And maybe the ESV says leaven. Um, there is a difference between leaven and yeast. Leaven is a lump of fermented dough. So it's a piece of dough that's fermented from the last batch that you baked. And they would keep this lump safe somewhere in the house in a warm place. And the next time they came to bake, they'd introduce the lump of dough into the new mix and it would spread all the way through, and they would make bread again, and they'd take a lump of that and save that leaven for next time. So you get the idea. Baking, a ball of leaven, a bad batch of leaven could spread through the entire thing and corrupt everything you baked. So he says, watch out for the leaven. He's not talking about the wrong sort of bread, is he? He's putting them on their guard against the wrong sort of kingdom vision. The Pharisees... Herod, they're diluting the kingdom vision. They want God to set up a kingdom, but not the kingdom that God wants. The Pharisees want God to set up a kingdom for the benefit of the Jews, not the benefit of the whole world. Herod and his company want God to establish their royal family as true kings of Israel. These visions are way off. Jesus' kingdom vision is very big and very different. And his amazing feedings are signs of what it's about. But note the warning again. Be careful. Watch out for that yeast, leaven. Even Jesus' closest followers are prone to this wrong thinking, this yeast. Look at verse 16. This is an amazing statement. Verse 16. They discussed it with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. <laughs> It's because we have no bread that he's saying that. You know, Jesus did not choose the 12 most stupid men in the world to follow him. They're actually quite typical people. They're a representative sample of humanity, and so they are a lesson for us. They're spiritually blind. We should see these disciples and ask, could I be like that? Spiritually, could I miss what God is doing in my life and wanting to show me? Could I misunderstand the nature of God's kingdom and how it works? I could. I might be doing it right now. So friends, if you're a Christian here, can I ask you to acknowledge that you are basically obtuse to Jesus? Your, your posture, your inherited posture is not understanding him. And so you can miss obvious lessons about him and he needs to keep reminding you. And he will. He's faithful. You think you know a lot more about God and yourself than you really do. And so we need to humble ourselves and be prepared to be teachable. We need to watch out for any sniff of arrogance in ourselves. And when we see it, be quick to confess, ready to change, especially when other people point it out.
This should keep us from being a know-it-all who thinks that their role in life is to go around correcting other people's behavior. It should make us ready to be taught, even by those who are younger, those less experienced in the faith, those less educated, those who think we think no less than us. We must be ready to be taught. Jesus will speak in thousands of different places. And this should also keep us from being so preoccupied with material things that we fail to see the spiritual reality. How could they say that they only have one loaf in the boat? One loaf. You've got Jesus plus one loaf. I think you've got dinner covered. They're so preoccupied with what they've got or haven't got enough that they, they forget that Jesus is in the boat. All we've got is one loaf. Can I suggest to you that we do this all the time, Christian friends? Are you worried about money? Fuel prices, mortgage, tax, council tax. (laughs) You're looking at your bank balance and it's not even halfway through the month. You're wondering if your benefit payments are going to be cut. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills. You start to get so anxious about money that all your confidence drains away and you start to fixate on money. I've only got one loaf, Lord. Where are you? You stop trusting Jesus. You're saying, I've only got one loaf. You're so preoccupied with the material reality. But that's money. Are there other areas in life where we do this? You could be worried about the future. I don't know what's going to become of me. I don't know what my life will be now. I don't know if I'm always going to live unfulfilled. I don't know if I'll be cared for. I don't know if, I'll be dis- if I'm disappointed. Will I always be alone? What you're really saying there is, Lord, I don't think you've got the future covered. Really? Jesus hasn't thought about the future? I think he's got it covered. Let's get away from the one loaf mentality. Perhaps you're worried about your family. Oh, your children. And you brought them up, taught them the Bible, brought them to church, sent them on fusion camp and all these other camps and this wonderful youth work that's here and yet they don't seem to be following the path that you'd hoped and dreamed they always would and you prayed for it maybe every day and so now you're starting to ask Lord are you there because now this thing has gone wrong I can't see you anymore because I'm so focused on this thing beware of that leaven It will steal your spiritual life away from you. It will take your joy, leave you bitter and much, much smaller than you were meant to be. Will I cope with this health problem? How come those guys got healed and I've not been healed? Why didn't Jesus show up and heal my sight? Cancer. Disability. And I don't know the answer. But I do know he will in the world to come. It's a promise. This world, this life is like a waiting room. We're getting ready in it. One day the doors will swing wide open. We'll go into the world to come.
where there will be no more sorrow or sickness or death or even tears. He rose from the dead to promise that. Is Jesus big enough to deal with your life? Could it be, I'm saying this tenderly, could it be that he has allowed those very situations into your experience right now in order to teach you to depend on him? Has the suffering exposed that you didn't really put him first? Friends, today is the time to trust Jesus. Recognize that he's got it covered. And that in the darkness and the distress and uncertainty of our lives, he will walk with us in a way that we wouldn't have known otherwise. That he is meeting you right now. He's there waiting for you in your place of need because you are in need. Don't be so focused on the loaf that you lose sight that Jesus is in the boat with you. Alexander McLaren, a great Victorian preacher in Manchester, told a story of certain fish that lived in deep caverns in North America, subterranean caverns. And these fish have lived and swum in these caverns for so long and so many years that they now have no eyes. Because they didn't need those, that capacity. And we can deprive ourselves of capacities by not using them. We need to use the eyes of faith, look at the word, look at God's people, and come to the Lord's table and be reminded again that he is there for us. And so the cure for all this is in Jesus' question, do you remember? Do you remember? It's a question for us to remember Jesus and to remember our own story with him. Not so long ago, these guys had seen people fed from one-packed lunch, picked up baskets of leftovers, and yet they could worry themselves that there's only one loaf in the boat. How do we not remember? Because of our typical posture. And you know, I spoke to a lovely physiotherapist in this church because I had some back trouble recently, and she pointed out to me that posture, (laughs) probably looking at me right now, Posture is a matter of something that has to be corrected all the time because it just goes back to what it was before, caveman. Let's think about our posture. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, what, what he has been to you, what he has promised you, and that will lift, lift you again above the cares of this life and put those cares into perspective. And that is what we are doing at the Lord's table, which Matt will lead us to in a moment. So what about those here who are not Christians? You're exploring Let me ask you, do you now know that it is time to trust Jesus? What is keeping you from faith? Remember the tightrope walker before the fifth journey with the human being in the wheelbarrow. All right, my friend, let's go. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Lord, we need to hear from you because we forget very, very quickly We forgot last Sunday's sermon by Monday morning. And yet, Lord, you're so faithful. You keep reminding us. You keep bringing us back to you. And you will not let us go. Lord Jesus, you are the shepherd who will not lose one single sheep that the Father has given you. So gather your sheep in today and feed us now at the table, we pray. Amen.
Amen. Friends, we're going to sing a lovely song, actually, that 